and welcome to the Citizen Forge podcast. This is Citizen Forge podcast number four. And uh, in this one, we're going to use some of the tools that we've already established uh, in episodes one, two, and three, where we define the lens of the Citizen Forge and what that means and how, how it defines whether or not citizens are connected to the, the greater society, the Leviathan, and, and why that, uh, that tends to erode over time. We talked about the nature of truth in Citizen Forge podcast number two. We'll talk about that as well. And then finally, in podcast number three, we talked about liberal progressive strategy, not just as it applies to the United States and what we're seeing here today, but as it is applied throughout history, very similar strategy uh, exercise each and every time. So here on podcast number four, uh, we'll handle just a couple of issues uh, at first, and we'll save some more for other podcasts, but we'll talk a little bit about the 2020 election. Uh, pretty important uh, issue right now, although, of course, in years to come, that'll fade. It won't be quite as enduring, although some of the principles involved are enduring. And we'll also take a moment to talk about gun rights, another enduring issue and one that is uh, rising in relevancy, uh, particularly uh, given what we might see in as a result of this election. <clears throat> so, as always, the Citizen Forge Project is the organization I established to coalesce an information campaign. I, it's designed to describe how and why, in particularly why, nations are a road towards failure and what we might do about it. This podcast is just one segment of the Citizen Forge Project, and you can find it uh, on all of the uh, uh, normal podcast channels like Spotify and, and uh, Google Podcasts and lots of other places. You can also find it at my web webpage, excuse me, the thecitizenforgeproject.com. And please bear in mind that the comments I make and the opinions I express are entirely my own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions or stance of any institution with which I have been affiliated. All right, and so with that, let's get into what we wanna talk about today. Let's begin with the 2020 election. There's an enormous amount of ground that we could cover here, but let's use some of those tools that we talked about during episode number two, that's the nature of truth. Let's think about those and see if we can be as analytical as possible. Now, there's no question that we have to admit that we don't have all of the information here, do we? Remember in that uh, podcast, we talked about the basic nature of philosophy, right? Which is uh, we have a belief, then we seek truth. And out of those two things, if we find truth, we can find knowledge. So uh, let's ask ourselves, do we have perfect knowledge of this election? And the answer is no, I don't think we have perfect knowledge. Do we have beliefs? Yeah, there are beliefs on both sides. Uh, both the the liberal progressive side and what might be called the conservative or traditional side have beliefs about what happened in this election. And I don't mean uh, you know ballots were cast and and, and a president elect uh, was designated. That's not what I mean by what happened. I mean what happened in terms of the validity and essentially a fraud in this election. Do, do we see that here? And it sure, certainly seems so. So let's. Let's step into that, acknowledging that we don't have all the all the knowledge, but let's take a look at some of the, uh, you know, prima facie pieces that are evident to all of us. Uh, here's the first one. So during this election, we noted that conservatives, if you will, uh, really wiped out liberal progressives, essentially from every position from the president on down. Uh, took an enormous number of House seats, held the Senate. Uh, all of this, was, of course, was, was predicted by the liberal progressives that it wasn't going to happen. Now, why did all of that happen? Well, there have been a lot of 
events going on over the last year or two. There's been an enormous amount of falsehood coming out of the media. We had uh, all the nonsense, uh, uh, the Russia collusion and the impeachment nonsense, and then the attacks on Brett Kavanaugh, uh, on and on, the attacks on uh, Amy Coney Barrett. I think people, this is, you know, this is conjecture here, so keep that in mind, but I think a significant portion of the population that feels itself connected to the nation. And again, what I mean by connected to the nation is not that they like their nation for what it provides them, but they recognize their responsibility to it. And in the good, bad or, or good, evil energy equation, the nation comes into play just as someone in your family does. And so that's what I mean by being connected to the Leviathan. If, uh, if that's unclear to you, Go back and listen to podcast one, which will give you a, a notion of the Citizen Forge model and what I mean by Leviathan. Okay, so why would that happen? Why why would uh, we get such an incredible, uh, incredibly strong standing amongst the conservative population? Well, I think they were pushing it back against all those issues that I mentioned. I think they were also pushing back against what is really the intentional attack on the American people uh, based on the, the, the COVID dilemma. Uh, again, I don't want people not to take COVID seriously. You should take every type of sickness of this nation seriously, just like we take the flu season seriously every year. You get a vaccine, wash your hands, keep some separation. It is not fun getting the flu. And for a certain segment of the population, it can actually be deadly. We will all be in that population someday, um, Lord willing, right? So it isn't something to take lightly. That's not my point. But certainly... We do not lock down the nation for influenza. We do not lock down. We didn't lock down the nation for bird flu or swine flu or or any even for an Ebola outbreak. We didn't we didn't lock down the nation. We didn't lock it down for Legionnaires disease, you know, which which occurred several decades ago. So again and again, we've never done that. So why was it done this time? Well, that's what we have to ask ourselves. Let's let's use Occam's razor on that one, right? Occam's razor, if you recall, says. Uh, Generally speaking, the simplest answer is probably the correct one. Don't invent a lot of other pieces of information to explain what's going on. Look for that simple answer. So using Occam's razor, we take a look at that situation. Why would we have such a vastly different response than we have had in almost 250 years of history? Now, by the way, there, there were some fairly extreme responses during the Spanish flu in the early 1900s. So let's let's not ignore history there. Uh, but with that exception, which was a significantly you know, different kind of, of uh, event, in the modern time, we've never had that kind of response. So why, why did we do that? Why did we really wipe out the economy? Again, think about Occam's razor. Well, who pushed to really wipe out the economy? I'm not talking about the shutdown. I mean, I think there was a period where I'm not a big fan of even the two-week shutdown model that was an, an initially uh, uh, pitched to the president, and then the president accepted it. Now, that's a tough thing for you and I to understand, right? So imagine that you're that president. You're not a medical expert. You're medically aware, and your most highly paid top officials come to you and say, uh, this this uh, this incoming disease is so bad that we're going to lose well over 2 million Americans to it. 
the only chance you have is to try to kill it by shutting it down for two weeks and by flattening that curve, right? So that hospitals are not overwhelmed with one giant spike of this piece going through that. And that's what you're told. And then you're presented with all kinds of models that back that up. Well, as a president, again, I'm not the president and neither are you, but as a president, that's awfully difficult to look in the face and say, no, no I'm not going to do that. Uh, that is hard to do. And it seemed pretty reasonable, right? Just two weeks, things were already pretty bad. Things that that, that might solve it. You could drop it from 2 million to 200,000. That's a pretty enormous uh, change there. So it was done. I can understand why it's done, but I suspect that there was manipulation even there, right? Uh, given ha uh, that it turns out that this disease is vastly less uh, dangerous than it was initially uh, thought. Why is it that we thought it was so dangerous? We didn't really have a lot of data for that, did we? So it seems to me that there was some other motivation for this. And it, it appears to me to be very simple. As I kind of pointed out before, there are several things in play. About six months before this, we had the uh, President Trump bringing the Chinese to the bargaining table in a very public fashion uh, for an enormous loss of face for the Chinese government. Uh, and then six months later, it's, it's the year of election, and suddenly we have a Chinese virus released. And then we have uh, all of these strange reactions. Now, after the two-week lockdown, if you, if you recall, it was the administration's desire to reopen everything, get kids back to school, so on and so forth, except a certain amount of risk. But who prolonged the shutdown? Well, we all know, right? It was all the liberal progressive uh, elected leaders from governors and so on and so forth who had executive orders to do that. So we saw an enormous stretching out of that. And again, what strategy did they use to do this? Well, it was the classic false flag, right? False flag of nobility. Hey, uh, we actually can't let one person die. Uh, we must plant that flag. I'm doing this for you. And because of this, uh, sure, 50 million people will lose their jobs and their futures and probably their homes and lots of other stuff, but I'm doing it for you. So do we really buy that? It certainly seems like a false flag to me. So let, so we've done the Occam's razor piece. Now, how about how about qui uh, bono? Who benefits? So who benefits from a shutdown economy in an election year? Well, the opposition, right? Uh, clearly, it was the opposition and not the incumbent. So given those two tools that we applied and, and a look across the history, it certainly seems that it was highly intentional. Uh, uh, and so that's, that's what we had there. Now, all of that moving up to the election, we add all that up. I think a lot of people understood that it was intentional and that it was evil. And soon thereafter, of course, we had the, the, the false riots. Well, they were real riots, but the false premise to, to allow for rioting across the nation and all these nations with over apparently a $2 billion in damage. Uh, police officers killed, civilians killed, animals killed, enormous amount of businesses destroyed. Uh, really horrible, all based on what was essentially a shaded uh, uh, news story, right? All based on that. So, so that doesn't really make any sense. It doesn't follow that we would have that kind of response, especially when the entire nation uh, was against what had happened in that video. So uh, again, that doesn't follow. That tells me that something else is going on. And suddenly we see that all these riots were uh, manned by professional rioters. They were supplied with weapons and signs from trucks. So this was all, it was all intentional. So again, we had two attacks on the population itself, both of those attacks coming from liberal progressives, and both of those projecting those attacks and, and, and those issues, projecting their failures onto the conservative side. 
pretty fascinating, right? So we have some pretty fascinating stuff there. So finally, we, we arrive at the election, and we had this bizarre result where uh, below the president and all the way down, the conservatives pushing back against all this enormous corruption from liberal progressivism uh, wipe out all the liberal progressives. And yet somehow, based on a very small number of very sus uh, suspicious cases, uh, the, the ballot count goes in the favor of the liberal progressive. How did that happen? We had all kinds of strange things, right? We had election centers stopping their votes uh, at, at 10 or 1030 at night, sending people home, but then continuing to count. And suddenly in the wee hours between midnight and 6 a.m., we find that hundreds of thousands of new ballots have appeared, just enough for what they need to, to get the swing states. Okay, so is it possible that that really happened? Well, maybe. It's very interesting that we had several pre-positioned patterns in place in the media. For a couple of months as we ran up to the election, we had a couple of, of main themes uh, that are shared across all the liberal uh, progressive media. And one of them was that President Trump would not go uh, uh, peacefully. And of course, that's a, a really a misuse of the term peaceful. But, the, but why did they have that narrative? Even, even when it was answered, why did they have that narrative? Well, because in asking the question, they were making the statement, weren't they? That's why they asked the question again and again and again. Will you go peacefully? Will you go peacefully? Because they knew they knew that they were going to cheat. And so they wanted to set up this pattern so that they could go back and say, hey, we've been asking about this. And look, sure enough, he's, he's not going peacefully, at least what they call peacefully. Now, from what I can tell, it has been entirely peaceful. It has been only a legal battle, which is entirely apropos for the situation, right? So we see all that uh, in play. Um, does it make sense that we would have that enormous loss for the liberal progressives down the ballot and not a loss on the presidency? Well, it, it is within the realm of the possible, let's admit that, but it does not seem to be anywhere near the realm of the probable. And plus all the chicanery that was around it tells us that, yeah, this was definitely an enormously planned effort to cheat and steal the election. Uh, at least from what you and I can see on the surface, very difficult to deny that. The only way to deny that is to truly be, well, in denial, or to be caught up in the throes of, of, of a cognitive dissonance where you will benefit enormously from a, the, the, the new or, or the liberal progressive side winning. And therefore, no matter what happens, you will always support that side and you will refuse to see the truth. You will refuse to apply Occam's razor, uh, qui bono, or any other truth detecting notion. You won't see the pattern uh, and you'll do that intentionally. And, and, and your, your brain will blind you to it because it doesn't your brain is not capable of thinking of you as a bad person, and so you'll you'll find a, a blinded you find yourself blinded to data, and you'll find yourself lying in whatever uh, way is needed. So then the question that we finally have here is based on the Leviathan: What is the right path forward for the nation? And again, it's not my call. All of this was really laid out for us in the Constitution, which is another document we really ought to talk about quite a bit. But in in short form, the Constitution was really an amazing document uh, put together by folks who had won an incredibly contested uh, uh, opportunity at freedom. It's a little bit like having the head coach of a college football team who's won three national championships in a row. 
have them write for you the playbook on how to do it yourself. And then you begin to depart from it. Well, why would you do that? The Constitution is that playbook. They succeeded in an incredibly contested area. George Washington turned down a kingship in order to be a president. They established all of the amazing freedoms that we have because they knew that we were a different kind of nation. That's what we were going to be. Uh, you know, capitalism, uh, freedom of speech, gun rights, all those pieces were, were, were put in place because they were so vastly different from what the other nations of the world experience. And that's an important point. I want you to think about that. I don't know if you've ever watched any of the movies out there, if you've ever watched Blood Diamond or, or uh, any of the movies that kind of show the uh, enormous pain and agony and, and tyranny that's all over the world. That's the normal human condition. Humans typically throughout history have, have lived in absolute misery with a small group of people on top living in luxury. That, that is the human condition. It's a horrible one. Only this nation began with this notion that we would all be equal and we would all have equal opportunity. Not equal outcomes, but equal opportunity. And they put into place some amazing things to make that happen. Capitalism itself is a fascinating look at human nature. Remember in the first uh, podcast, we talked about the dual nature of man, right? We all have a selfish uh, spectrum, if you will, that 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 serves to pull us towards the, the selfish end of the spectrum. That's where the pressure is. We all want to serve ourselves in some capacity. All animals do. But then our connection to the Leviathan pulls us in the other direction. We, we, we must, we must uh, exhibit selfless behaviors in order to be connected to other people and to the society. And it is those two spectra which also give us our notions of good and evil. Evil behavior, behavior being selfish and good behavior being always selfless. And so capitalism is, is pretty fascinating. It allows the engine of your own selfishness to uh, come to the fore in the sense that whatever, whatever business uh, proposition you put forward, whatever you execute, can bring to you enormous wealth, right? And, and you're going to keep that wealth in large part in this nation. And by pursuing that wealth, uh, essentially pursuing your own natural nature to be somewhat selfish, you end up benefiting not only the nation, but all, enormous numbers of people around you. You hire workers. Uh, the, those workers then uh, have steady jobs and they, they purchase more in the economy. Their dollars then build up other businesses. They buy houses. They, they, they build schools. It is a wonderful life, all built on the amazing harnessing of this, what is essentially the selfish nature of mankind. Very fascinating uh, idea, capitalism. But it's rough and tumble. Rough, capitalism allows you to fail as well. And that can be hard. You know, invest all your money and the business fails. Now what do you do? Well, you got to try again, don't you? But, also, but some people don't do that. So capitalism is not a panacea, but it is a brilliant strategy for producing wealth and innovation within a nation. Now, Right now, we're seeing a, a, the liberal progressive side push towards socialism. And 10, 20, 30 years ago, you could not have even said that in this nation and had anyone take you seriously. You would have been a nut, and, and rightly so. It's a horrible system. Look at Venezuela. Look at, at Cuba. Look at uh, China. Look at all these, these places or Russia that had a, a either communism or socialism. It's a horrible system. It's a system which believes in the fundamental goodness of man and ignores the fundamental selfishness. It is not a smart system. It's a bit like 
allowing a pack of wolves into a, a, a butcher shop and thinking that they'll be noble and not eat all the meat. Now, of course they won't. You're much better off harnessing the will of those wolves by uh, putting that, you know, put, putting the piece of meat on a stick and hanging it over their heads. And now suddenly they'll pull towards the meat, right? So you got to find a way to harness that. And socialism and communism does not do that. It, it, and that's why all those nations fail so horribly. There's no, no incentive to create wealth in those uh, uh, nations. So our constitution, again, a brilliant document, really amazing, um, gave us a lot of great guidance. And we're starting to drift away from it. So let's wrap up the 2020 election piece here. Does it look corrupt? Yeah, it looks very corrupt following the, the, the pieces of, of, uh, of the truth. We're seeing a huge pushback from the liberal progressive side who, instead of saying, yeah, you're right, this looks fishy, let's let's find out what, what the reality is. Instead of that, uh, they are pushing forward. They, they uh, uh, declared uh, Biden the president-elect from the newscast, which is, of course is not their right. That's not in the Constitution. States do that. It's a, there's a whole process. But they did it for what reason? Well, because they know the Supreme Court does not like to go against uh, a pre, pre-made decisions, right? So if they can if they can put pressure on the Supreme Court, and they do that also through their, uh, you know, through their through their rioting. That's another way to put pressure to show that if if you go against us, we're going to riot again. So you know they they're essentially threatening you with a protection racket here, all right? Plus uh, uh, plus the the. We're seeing the enormous censorship of people on on uh, big tech companies, which are liberal progressive. We're seeing all these punishments in place that they're lining up to say, you will not fight against our cheating. We want the White House back. We don't want to see uh, what the reality is. We don't want you to check on false ballots. We don't want you to check on uh, these Dominion machines, which use software that was purchased uh, from Canada and apparently has an investment from George Soros, one of the worst liberal progressives uh, in the world. All of that we don't want to see. So you see how we move away from truth. Let's go back to our philosophical formula. You have people with a belief that Biden won, but they're not seeking the truth, are they? They don't want the truth because that would lead to true knowledge. Why would we not want the truth? Well, the only reason is because you benefit from the lie. So that's that's where we are on the election. Kind of a dark time in a lot of ways. Uh, that that our nation, which is, has been known for, for pursuing the truth, uh, certainly not in, in in a perfect history. I mean, humans are always humans, and and, and there's plenty of error, but uh, it, it's a dark time. Okay, so let's move forward a little bit on to another great issue: uh, gun rights. And the reason I bring this up is uh, we're already beginning to see an enormous lockdown on gun rights before the so-called president-elect uh, is even really fully designated. Uh, at this time in 2020, uh, they've already begun to, st- to stop production on uh, Armalite rifles and, and all those issues. So we're starting to see an impingement on on people's gun rights. So let's talk about gun rights briefly and explain or at least think about why we have them and whether or not they are important. All right. So why why is it different for a nation to have gun rights? Well, first of all, what is what are gun rights? Well, within our nation, of course, it's under the Second Amendment, and it's the right to bear arms. Now, there are a lot of arguments about this. Some people said it's essentially it was a it was an anachronism designed to allow people to have weapons at a time when we were in revolution. Well, perhaps, uh, but most of the evidence that I've seen doesn't really line up for that. Essentially, what gun rights do for individual citizens are really three things. 
The first thing is it allows the citizens to be prepared to protect their nation, their government. Yep. So number one is protecting your government. And that happens in a variety of ways. As I said, if you're already comfortable and familiar with, with weapons and you've had weapons in your home, you know how to re, uh, use them. If you were ever called or recruited or even drafted to service, you've already got familiar, familiarity. And it leads to a sense of uh, of uh, uh, self-support, right? Uh, self-reliance that that you that you can have a weapon is very dangerous piece, but yet you can hold it responsibly. That's a very important, very mature uh, characteristic of a citizen. So protecting uh, your government is actually uh, very important. Now, second reason that that we would want you to have gun rights in your home is so that you can protect yourself and your family. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, we're seeing it now, right? In a fascinating twist, uh, uh, the very mechanism we put into place that reduces your need to protect yourself and your family uh, is a police force. This is a tax-paid force of, of folks who are highly trained, who respond to your need, and they obviate your requirement to pull out a weapon on anybody. Well, why do you need to do that when the police respond? If you call 911, they come to your house and they take care of this. Someone's running around doing something crazy, they take care of it. They arrest them. They put them into the legal system. You don't have to do that. It's an amazing capability when you trust those police. Now, do statistics show that our police have been trustworthy? Yeah, absolutely. They've been enormously trustworthy. Certainly not perfect, as I said before. The human condition is naturally flawed. You will always have flawed members in any group, of, uh, no matter uh, what its ideals are. So there are certainly flawed police officers. But by and large, it polices itself fairly well. And uh, the statistics show they're very, very restrained. Uh, yes, there are, are uh, shootings of all colors, by the way. Uh, but overall, incredibly tiny, tiny numbers compared to the number of, uh, of, of legal involvement for citizens across the U.S. So uh, no statistical evidence at all that, there, that, that there's any kind of abuse. But even if there were, uh, the ability to protect uh, yourself remains with you. So let's say the police don't come or let's say someone has defunded your police and they're not there and people want to come to your home, as we saw in many videos, and they're, they're, they're knocking down your door and they want to take your stuff and they want to kill your kids and they want to uh, sell your children into slavery or whatever it is they want to do suddenly you have the ability to fight back and you should be allowed to fight back at the same level that you're being attacked. So if they have access to semi-automatic rifles, you should have access to semi-automatic rifles. I agree that there are limits. We probably should not have giant bombs or tanks in people's driveways for the most part. That's probably too much. You're not being faced with that kind of pressure. So you probably don't need to uh, have that pressure uh, to return fire, but certainly a semi-automatic rifle uh, it certainly makes a lot of sense. Uh, by the way, this leads us to a quick side issue. And uh, that side issue is the AR designation. Hopefully people listening to this already know this, but when we talk about this notion of an AR-15, unfortunately, that's a classic case of a malpropism. AR uh, has been taken to stand for assault rifle. Uh, there's actually no such thing as an assault rifle. It's not a class. AR actually stands for Armalite. Armalite was the first company to produce that. And really all those AR-15s are, are simply a semi-automatic rifle. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you're not a gun person, it simply means that each time you pull the trigger, one shot is fired and then the rifle then recycles the next uh, uh, round into the chamber. That is semi-automatic. 
versus automatic, which is when you hold the trigger down, the, the weapon keeps firing. Now we don't allow uh, uh, automatic weapons in most cases. There are some antique exceptions and some other pieces, but for the most part, semi-automatic is what we allow. And AR-15s are semi-automatic, yet we've allowed the language to drift and redesignated them as assault rifles, simply not true. So once again, there's a big lie being put out there to protect the agenda and, and, uh, and to allow a, us to put forward this false flag of nobility, right? We must remove assault weapons. It's not an assault weapon. It's a semi-automatic rifle. Again, I'm not a huge gun person in that way, but I am, uh, uh, I am big on truth and I am big on protecting the rights of, of people. So we ought to know the truth. We ought to seek that truth before we say we have knowledge of something. And right, let me pause for a moment while I, while I shuffle the recording. Okay, and resuming where we were, we just finished talking about uh, protecting yourself. One last piece I want to put uh, out there. Susan Rice tells a wonderful story about when she was a young uh, lady living in the, the southern part of our nation. And at that time, it was a time of genuine unrest and genuine racism. And going through her neighborhood were a truck filled with uh, white supremacist racist. And they were very dangerous. And they were looking to uh, vandalize homes and terrorize people. And her father, uh, a black man, of course, uh, walked out with his shotgun on his shoulder and stood in the front yard. And while the truck stopped and they, in the, the, these miscreants, you know, yelled racial slurs and, and those pieces, they came no further. They came no further and they put their car in drive and drove away. Why did they do that? Well, because when the balance of power becomes balanced, when someone has a weapon, a powerful weapon equal to what's coming at them, it reveals the cowardice of these other folks, right? They're not going to be the first one out of the truck to go and attack to try to, you know, rape the little girl. They're not going to do that. Why? Because they know the first and maybe the second and maybe the third uh, of, of the ones who try that are going to go down to, to the weapon uh, in front of them. So very, very powerful to be able to protect yourself. It also demands an enormous amount of maturity on the part of the citizen. When you have a weapon and you use it in the proper way as, as defense, you pull it out only when necessary, you don't wave it around to get what you want. That's maturity. Uh, an immature person would use a weapon, you know, very differently. So again, a, a very important to be able to protect yourself. And lastly, this is the one that's not always as obvious, but very important. And our forefathers knew this. Having the citizenry armed means that they could also protect themselves from the government. That's right. So you can protect your government, protect yourself, and protect yourself from the government should it become necessary. They had seen throughout history, they saw what happened with the British Empire and how they would take over. And so they said, look, if all of our citizens have a gun, it gives pause to any invading soldiers. Before they kick open your door and take over your house and or, or do whatever they want to do, they know that you have a weapon in there. And the first one or first two through the door are going to be in a lot of trouble. And that is an enormous deterrent. The ability to protect yourself from that. And that's what they wanted. They didn't want this nation turning back to tyranny, uh, you know, from, from which it had emerged and which so many nations exist, exist under tyranny. So those three pieces there, protecting yourself, uh, protecting your government from uh, adversaries, and protecting yourself from your government in the case of tyranny, are the three primary reasons that gun rights are so incredibly important. So what are the attacks against gun rights? We kind of talked about the AR one already. Uh, again, it's a false flag. 
It's a it's a big lie. All the strategies that you would expect placed out there. And let's just walk through one other interesting logical uh, example. Most of you listening to this uh, drive cars. And when we drive cars, we're putting ourselves and others at significant risk. These are three to 7,000 pound vehicles moving at very high speeds. They're giant projectiles. And yet we still get in our cars every single day, despite the fact that there's significant risk to ourselves and to others. Now we take some mitigating steps. We, we wear seatbelts, we use analog brakes, we develop safety systems. We certainly aren't foolish about it, but we accept the risk there. And when uh, someone, say for example, a drunk driver uh, hits and kills someone, do we then punish all of the law-abiding drivers? Do we say, well, look, if, I'm sorry, but this person was hit and killed by a drunk driver. Therefore, cars are far too dangerous, and we're going to remove your cars so that no one will ever uh, be hit by a drunk driver again. Well, it's kind of a foolish answer, isn't it? There's far too much at stake in driving. We, our economy is based on the ability to rapidly move from one place to another, to transport people and goods. We need that, don't we? And we are willing to accept a certain degree of risk to have it. Now, we mitigate it, as I said, but we accept it. And we don't remove the capability from law-abiding citizens because of the acts of someone who has done something illegal, right? Drunk driving. So why is this not model exactly the same for the gun model? Well, of course it is. The enormous capability given to you by the ability to bear arms, as I've just gone through, right? That That's important. Somebody acts irresponsibly, just like a drunk driver, takes a gun and does something irresponsible with it. So what's what's the path forward from here? Well, of course, you punish the person committing the crime. You don't punish the innocent, do you? You don't remove an important capability from others in the hypothetical uh, notion that you would eliminate uh, all attacks throughout the world. Of course, that, that doesn't happen, does it? They'll just People who want to attack will find other ways to attack. Take a look in, in London where, where, where police don't even carry guns. People are still killing each other. They're stabbing each other or hitting each other with blunt weapons. If people want to kill somebody, they're, they're going to try to do it. Now, I admit that, a, that a, a weapon, a gun, makes them more capable of that. But at the same time, I want people bearing arms to protect themselves from that. So I think those are the important pieces that we, we, we get into for gun control. Be very careful when someone's trying to remove your rights. Even if you yourself are not a gun person or don't own guns or don't care about guns, think about how important they are to the Leviathan. But now for a moment, let's step, step back for a second. And I want you to think through that Citizen Forge lens for a second. Think about two citizens, right? One who has undergone a Citizen Forge event feels connected to the people and to their nation, and one who maybe loves their neighbors just fine, but really doesn't feel that connection uh, uh, to the nation, doesn't feel the, the need to take care of the nation. Remember all those pieces that I said, you know, protecting yourself, uh, protecting your government, protect yourself from their government. None of those are in play for that person. They're not connected to the Leviathan. Therefore, the decisions that they make will be fairly immature decisions. They, they will be the decisions of a 10-year-old child who has not matured. It's not that they're, that they're not always earnest. In some cases, I think people are very earnest. And if you take it down to the individual level, a father or a mother who has lost a child or in school shooting or something like that, those are horrible situations. Horrible. There's no question that, that there, there is significant risk to having a weapon just like there's significant risk to driving a car, right? So we know that that's the case, but 
if you're connected to the Leviathan, if you're connected to the nation, you see all the other important aspects of gun rights. You can see why it makes the nation stronger. And, and therefore, you'll, you'll always vote to protect those rights. It's a fascinating difference. So always, always take a look at that when we're going through these issues. Think about people who are not connected to it and people who are connected to it and why they see it so differently. So often, the two sides call one another stupid. That's their answer. You're, 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 you're stupid on the other side. And certainly there's stupidity on both sides. We've seen that. But more importantly, one side is societally mature. The other side is societally immature. And so you have the decisions of essentially an adult who can see further, who has matured, who understands the impacts to the nation, and the decisions of a child who can't see that. Ask any 10-year-old child how to solve these problems. It'll say the same things. Well, just, just take all guns away. Oh, we can solve hunger by just, just feed everybody. Those are great ideas, right? Just feed everybody. But it ignores all the reality of, of what, what it takes to make that happen, doesn't it? And that's the nature of immaturity. It's not that it's, it's evil or wrong. It's simply immature. It cannot see yet. And we expect children to grow out of that and to see the bigger picture. Why do we not expect that of our citizens? We absolutely should. And that's what the Citizen Forge is all about. All right. Oh, that's a pretty interesting, a lot, a lot of interesting stuff there. Again, always consider where I'm coming from. Do you think my intention is to deceive you? Do you think my intention is to manipulate you? You might, uh, but make sure you think through all those pieces. Apply the tools that we've talked about. Apply Occam's Razor, apply Qui Bono, uh, Who Benefits, Apply, follow the money, all those little tools and see where it takes you and see who's benefiting and see where people are connected. And then that, that'll uh, give you a, a quite a bit of insight. And so that's going to wrap up this episode of the Citizen Force podcast. And please remember that the goal of the Citizen Force project is to continue an information and thought campaign that outlines the erosion of America and reveals why that erosion is happening and how we might stop it. And of course, please be sure to check out my website, thecitizenforgeproject.com, where you can find these podcasts. You can purchase my book, The Citizen Forge, recently endorsed by Mr. Bill O'Reilly himself. And you can also book me for speaking events. Uh, the Citizen Forge seminar in particular is one of my most popular. I give it in both person and in webinar form. Uh, it can run from anywhere from 45 minutes up to two hours, depending upon what kind of audience you have and how engaged they want to be. So I can, I can tailor it for you there. I also speak to groups on leadership, the nature of truth, citizenship, and a variety of other topics. I'm always happy to engage, and I'm more than willing to debate in a respectful, mature environment. Happy to do that anytime. And finally, if you're of a mind, you can support the Citizen Forge Project by donating through our GoFundMe link, also found on the webpage. And that should do it, guys. Thanks again, and we will see you next time on the Citizen Forge Project for, uh, podcast. <laughs>